Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. Welcome to all the kids that are among us. We're really glad you are in here and with us. Great to see the kiddos. Uh, one of the things I like doing is bringing kids in a few times a year. Um, you know, if a lot of churches uh, in, in the last uh, half century or so, they've done children's ministry up to, you know, sixth grade, and then they have the middle school ministry, which is uh, separate from the main worship gathering, and then high school ministry is in a building on the other side of the, the campus sort of thing. And so a kid can reach 18 without ever being in a regular worship gathering. And people have, have guessed that this is one of the reasons that a lot of uh, our youth have left the church over the last, you know, half, uh, half a century. Uh, and so we want to involve the kids uh, on, on occasion, and uh, we're really glad they're in here this morning. So uh, really glad you're here. And I think this is a great uh, story for the kids. We're looking at the love of God in this series on enjoying God, asking what does it mean to actually enjoy God, uh, to know him in such a way that our relationship to him is marked by joy and happiness and peace and satisfaction. And so our topic today is love, God's love. And we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And if there's any word in our culture that gets used uh, just so, so much and in so many different ways for so many different things, it's, it's love. Um, think about how many things we say we, we love. Like I love burritos. I love this rug. Like we'll say it for just about anything. And then we have to come up with new ways to describe things that we love. So we say like, I'm obsessed with these shoes, you know. Uh, I'm crushing on this sandwich. I've got all the feels for my local church, and I'm excited to serve in this next upcoming commitment cycle. <laughs> all, the, all these different ways that we want to, to use love and, and express love. Uh, and as far as I can tell, our, our culture's definition of love is uh, strong, positive feelings. And that's about it. Just strong, positive feelings. That's, that's our understanding and our definition of love. And so as, as we come to the love of God, God's love is an attribute, something that's true of him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need a fuller understanding of love. Now, it's true that God does have strong, positive feelings for us, but we need more than that, right? We need a, a love from God that is stronger than life, a love that's, that's uh, higher than the heavens, a love that's deeper than the grave, stronger than death. We need the love that Jesus was, was often talking about. Whenever Jesus taught on, on love, he didn't, uh, he didn't give a, a lecture. He didn't give like theological terms and categories, but he told stories. He's, he's often telling stories of God's love. And so we're looking at Luke 15. It's in your bulletin, um, but it's long enough that I'm just going to read through it as we go. So we won't do a traditional uh, standing for the reading this morning. But begin with me in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is a, a familiar story to most of us, but try to, try to put yourself into the context of it this morning. Try, try to remember what it would have been like or, or imagine what it would have been like to be in Jesus' original audience. Israel is what's considered a, an honor and shame culture, and so morality was everything. Being a good person was, was one of the highest things you could achieve. Being a, a family-centered person meant everything in this society. And so when the younger son asks for his share of the inheritance while his father is still living, it's, it's a ridiculous request. It's a shocking request. It's something that would have had the whole uh, Israelite crowd murmuring amongst each other that this, this son is, is worthy of being banished from the family. Literally, the father, if he was dishonored by his son, could have his son killed. And so the younger son makes this request, which is essentially saying to his father, you're worth more to me dead than alive. I want you out of my life. I just want the money that you have for me. And shockingly, the father actually grants him his, his request, actually splits the inheritance and lets him go. The son's behavior is not really that shocking to us in our culture, moving far away, um, you know, building friends in exotic places, uh, uh, drinking, partying, uh, you know, having all these relationships. That's uh, something we've come accustomed to in our culture. But in that day and age, it would have been shocking to these people. Um, it, it would have been uh, extremely uh, inflammatory. And so the people that are listening are sort of rising and in, in they're hearing of this parable, waiting for Jesus to come down and, and to condemn this young man for his behavior. but I think we can, we can all relate to the younger brother. You've, you've probably thought about this before, but, but think what are, what are the ways in which you can relate to, to his request? What are the ways that you can relate to his desire to simply escape and to get away? Think about the, the part of us that, that longs to, to get away to where it's easier. Uh, maybe we've even moved time and time again throughout our lives. Maybe we've been in pursuit of, of the next big thing, the next job, the next relationship, and it's, it's carried us to, to the ends of the earth, to, to a place that's far from home. We've started over again and again and again, and what is it that we're looking for? It's interesting, the, the son, as he's far from home, I believe one of the things he's most deeply searching for is, is satisfaction and, and meaning. He's looking for acceptance and, and approval. He's looking, he's looking for pleasure but he's also looking for what it can bring, which is a, a sense of place, a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. And just as it says that he's, he's longing to eat this, this horrible food, I see pig foods like carnival food, which is just all other food that's left over, ground up and covered in sugar. I think that's what pig food is in this passage. He's longing to eat this horrible food, and it says no one gave him anything. And I think of that in terms of what he was actually looking for, his, his search for approval and his search for acceptance. And it says that no one gave him anything. And so finally he comes to his senses in verse 17. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. And so he makes this long, long, lonely walk back home. It's, it's the walk of shame for him as he is recognizing that everything he has done, he has is, he is done wrong. He, is, he has spent it all. He has lost it all. He didn't find anything of what he was looking for. And now he's coming back expecting a, a hard scolding, at best maybe a, a job interview to be one of the hourly workers on the property. Now it says, verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now inside your bulletin, I've put a little uh, picture. It's, it's an image of uh, a world-famous painting done by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I want to use this as an illustration today because it's one of the most profound images uh, that we have to describe this parable. It's really beautiful, and it's almost awful that it's on such a small quarter sheet of paper. Uh, the original painting was done in uh, what's believed to be 1669, in one of the last year or two of Rembrandt's life. The original painting is eight feet tall by six feet wide. So think about it. This pipe and drape is eight feet tall, and most of the sections are about seven feet wide. So that's the size of this painting that Rembrandt composed at the end of his life. At the center of the painting, you see the younger brother, the prodigal son who's, who's returned home. His clothes are torn, he's missing a sandal, and the other one's worn out, and he's collapsed on his knees in embarrassment and, and regret and shame. His days of running are, are over, and he's finally found himself on his knees before his father. He's gone after everything the world has to offer, and he's, he's come home empty-handed. His posture is one of, of surrender, and yet he's finally home. He's finally in, in the light, you know, the significance of this in, in art. He is, he is bathed in light with the Father while everybody else is, is covered in darkness. They're in the shadows. The Son has finally come to his home. He's finally felt the embrace. He's finally returned to the light. Now I think about what does Jesus want us to know in, in telling this parable? What did he want his disciples to know? What did he want the crowds that had gathered in around him to know? First of all, in the prodigal son, he wants us to see the, the love that he has for us, the love of the Father for us. Even when we run away, even when we spend it all, even when we do everything we can to get away from him, God loves us still. God is the Father waiting on the porch for us, coming out to meet us as soon as we are on the property, saying he'll have nothing of the long apology, but he prepares a feast instead. Earlier in Luke 15, it says this, Jesus speaking to this same crowd, he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need 
of repenting. And so think about this. What, what would this mean for you if you, if you truly believed this? How, how would your life change if you deeply believed that heaven rejoiced over your salvation and continues to rejoice over your walk with God? If you knew that God didn't just accept you, but he embraced you, that he had put all of your sins behind you, that he can't look on them anymore, that he is complete in his acceptance and approval of you, that he delights in you and even enjoys who you are because he made you. What would that change? Verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never once disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And so in this older brother, we see this character who is uh, upstanding. He's a, he's a noble person. He's the kind of person that the, the Israelite crowd would have, would have liked, would have identified with. They're expecting Jesus to end the parable with something like, be like the older brother. Stay home. Do good. Don't, don't you know, reject your father. Don't reject your family. Just stay home and do the right thing. End of story. But in Jesus' story, it's, it's the older brother that's left out. Over and over and over, Jesus pictures salvation and eternal life as a great feast, as a, as a celebration, a great banquet. And so the fact that the older brother is actually still outside of the feast and the banquet at the end of the story, it, it suggests to the crowds and to us that he has not found salvation. He has not found eternal life, but he, he is removed from the party and removed from the presence of the Father. The Father even goes out to him to, to plead with him and to extend his love to the older brother. But he won't come in. The older brother would rather be outside with, with the good people, the noble people, the ones who have it together, than to be inside with the, the wild and the forgiven ones. He only wants in the party if he's earned it. If you're like me, you can probably identify with the older brother as well. Maybe you can even identify with the older brother more than the younger. Uh, especially when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, I was a pretty good kid. I was watching an interview with uh, Tina Fey, the, the writer and, and actress, and she was, uh, said when she was in school as a kid, a Catholic nun came in and told the class, don't do drugs. And so she said, okay. She never did drugs. And that's, that's essentially what I was like as a kid, too. If somebody told me not to do something, I wouldn't do it. If they told me to do something, uh, I would do it. Uh, so the crime dog, don't do drugs, never did drugs. Uh, you know, the bear with the park ranger suit, it's on me to prevent forest fires. I can bear that responsibility. So I can identify with, with the sense of responsibility, the sense of duty of the older brother. I want to do what's good and right. And, and that means a lot to me. That's part of how I view myself, part of how I want other people to view me as well. 
If you look at the painting, you see the older brother at right. He's, he's clothed in the, the royal red. He's, he's perfectly reserved. He's disapproving. There's a, another nobleman next to him, and then actually two women in the back of the painting that are looking on as well. But they're all at a distance. None of them are, are stepping into the light. None of them uh, share the father's embrace of the son. And it's interesting, it's, it's always safer to be on the sidelines. It's always safer to be a, a bystander than to be in the middle or to be in the light. To, to welcome someone home or to be welcomed home is, is far more, more risky and more dangerous, it seems, than to stay on the sidelines. But that's exactly what they're doing. The, the older brother in the parable, the, the other people in this painting, they all represent different ways of not getting involved. Think about it. Throughout the, the Bible, the, uh, the Bible doesn't just describe sin as things that we do wrong, although that's part of it. It's often describing sin as, as not getting involved, as not stepping into something we ought to step into. And that's exactly the sin of the older brother. He refuses to, to move towards his brother. He refuses to move towards his father. He doesn't want to get hurt. He doesn't want to get embarrassed. He doesn't want to give something of his away. And so he stands, arms crossed at the distance, refusing to move forward. And so what do we learn about God's love to, to the older brothers, to the older brothers within us? Verse 31, the father says, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And I can identify with the younger son and with the older son. And I think now having kids, I can even identify with the father. That's something I hadn't really thought about a lot until this week. But imagine the father's pain all of these years while his younger son is away. Every night waiting and, and waiting and, and looking off into the distance, hoping your son has come home. There's, there's no pain I've, I've experienced like the pain of my child being in pain. Uh, and not like physical pain because they're like hurt all the time. If they fall down outside, I have like literally zero compassion left. It's awful. I just like n nothing, no amount of compassion rises for me when they get hurt physically. But when they are hurt emotionally, it, it's crazy how deep it stings. When I see one of their, their friends uh, reject them or, or tease them or when they get exposed to something on the school bus that's, that's too mature for them, man, that hurts in, in a place that I didn't even know existed. And so I think about this father, what it's like to experience this total rejection and, and, and to feel the longing for his son to return. And then the moment when his son finally does return to lose the other son, you know, the older son stays out on the fringes. And so there's so much hurt, there's so much pain in this parable and yet all of, it, all of it points to the father's love. The father and the prodigal are, are bathed in light. They're in a place that's, that's unknown to the older brother and to the bystanders. They're in a place that's marked by total love and acceptance. They're in a place that's beyond all, all earning and all striving and all deserving and all proving and rewarding. There's, there's none of that in the light. It's only pure acceptance, pure approval, pure delight. 
And the call for us is, is to step into that light, to move out of the shadows, move toward the light and toward the Father. When this painting was, was completed, a lot of art critics believe that it's one of Rembrandt's uh, self-portraits, in a sense. So he did self-portraits throughout different stages in his career. Uh, and Rembrandt, it's interesting, he actually became world famous when he was in his 20s and early 30s. Uh, his paintings were, were renowned all over the world. So you know a lot of painters, they don't get their due until long after they're dead. Rembrandt was one of the most famous, well-known uh, people in, in the entire society in that age. And so he had wealth, he had friends, popularity, fame. He had everything he ever wanted, and then it slowly fell apart over the decades. And so he got married, but then all three of his children died, and then his wife died. And so he got remarried, had two more kids, and then one of those kids died, and his second wife died as well. His art went totally out of style, and he had a long uh, season of life where he had no, no paintings that were worth anything. And so he had to declare bankruptcy and lose absolutely everything. All of his own collection of art was all taken away. So by his 50s, by about 60, the time that he painted this, he was completely alone, completely poor. He was an afterthought and, and uh, you know, just a distant memory in his own society. And yet he paints this incredible masterpiece. He, he stands at this massive canvas and, and with only a, a tiny bit of his own vision left, he would have been basically pressed up against the canvas painting this. He does this unbelievable work. This, this painting, it's, it's, I think, so significant and, and so helpful in, in seeing this parable because it, it represents a, a, or, or reflects a man who knows what it's like to come home. The art critics say that he's painting himself both as the son and the father in the embrace, that after these decades of, of going and spending everything and seeking approval, he's finally come back home. And yet he's also the father because he's finally accepting all that's happened to him over the past few decades. He's finally able to, to embrace his past and embrace all of the hurt. It's the work of somebody who knows this embrace, who seems to have been deeply changed by God in that process. And so what are our, what are our responses? How do, we, how do we respond to this love that God has for us? And the first thing is to surrender to love. I know surrender is not a, not a popular word. It's not an easy word. It, it might conjure up um, even a feeling of, of abuse or hurt. But in the scripture, surrendering to God is actually one of the major themes. Actually giving your life totally to God is the source of true freedom according to the scriptures. And so we see the, the younger son surrendering by coming to his senses, by returning home, by, by entering the embrace of his father. We see the father surrender by going out to meet his son, by, by kind of throwing aside his, his own honor and welcoming his son back. He's surrendering and going even to his older son outside. The only one who doesn't surrender is the older son. He'll, he'll have nothing of, of giving up his power, of giving up his place. He's still clinging to it at the end of the parable. And so as you think about yourself, as you think either about the, the longing that you have, maybe even to escape or to get away or to find some, some better life out on the horizon, 
or maybe if you identify more with the older brother and you picture yourself striving or, or yearning to get the approval that you've been wanting for so long, what does it look like to surrender to God's love? What does it look like to put yourself in the place of embrace, to simply receive from the Father everything that belongs to you, all of his presence for you? It's one of the hardest things to ask ourselves. If we don't have everything that surrounds us, do I, do I still matter? If I don't have my job, if I don't have the, the success at work, do I still matter? If I don't have the, the relationship, if I don't have my marriage, if I don't have my kids, do I still matter in the world? Do I still matter to God? If, if everyone I love leaves me and, and moves on, do I still matter? It's, it's a haunting question. But the answer is that we absolutely still matter. Everything else in our lives can be removed from us. Everything can be taken so, so quickly in this life. And the one thing that we're always yearning for, the one thing that we're always searching for, the, the deep longing beneath all the other longings, it's for complete acceptance and approval in God's arms. It's the one thing that can never be taken away. When everything else fails, there's only one love that will satisfy us, and it's surrendering to God's love. And so surrender to his love, and then second, return the love. Love God and love one another. We said two weeks ago, loved people, love people. You know, hurt people, hurt people. Loved people, love people. God's love moves to us, and then we return it to him, and then it flows, as Casey said, through us to all others. God's love transforms us from the inside out so that we can only show love and give love to everyone around us as Christ dwells within us through his spirit. And so if you're struggling to, to love someone, whether it's a, a spouse, a, a roommate, somebody who has uh, different views than you, somebody who it's so easy for you to look down on, if you're struggling to love anybody, ask yourselves, how am I, how am I standing at a distance? How am I standing on the fringes? How have I removed myself and I'm content to stay back in the dark with my, my arms folded and, and a sense of reservation and self-protection? What does it look like to step into the light and to, to embrace and be embraced? Jesus is a, is a master storyteller. All of his stories, they draw so deep into God's love. But he also serves in the sense of this parable as, as the older brother that we need. He's the one that comes and searches for us. He's the one that, that left heaven to make a way for us, to draw us back to the Father. And it's through his life, death, and resurrection that we find the very thing we've been looking for all along. And the good news is that that nagging sense of loss, that deep disconnection that we feel, it's all meant to point us back to a father who is waiting to embrace us, a father of complete love. Let's pray.